Hi, I'm Mark Woods, and back with another Page One podcast, and today have Matt Sorgel with me. Matt, who's one of our uh, feature writers extraordinaire, and uh, uh, interesting challenge today for the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Um, what do you do for that, and how do you write stories? And I kind of glanced at a lot of papers this morning to see what they did, and a lot of them wrote kind of the here and now story. Um, some tried to tell the story going back. Um, maybe Matt, can you tell what you came up with for our lead story today? Yeah. Hey, Mark. Um, it was kind of indirectly my idea. <laughs> uh, someone here suggested maybe finding would, uh, knowing that I'd done some stories about D-Day veterans said, would you go back and find your stories and maybe we could just run them all online. Then I started looking for D-Day in our system and realized we had a wealth of stories, um, and not just ones written by me, but others written by other staffers, most of them um, departed uh, over the years in our computer system, sitting right there, and I started looking through these stories. I said, gosh, these are amazing <laughs> stories. So I went over to my editor and said, hey, how about I just do a story weaving together the stories that we already have from mm -hmm. these people? And... Uh, it was a really rewarding experience, kind of bittersweet, because at the end I said, okay, well, what happened to these guys that we interviewed over the years? And uh, uh, to a man, the ones that I chose to use had all passed away. Yeah. Um, but they left their stories behind in interviews with fine Times Union journalists over the years, and uh, their words are as relevant and horrifying and sometimes even a little bit kind of funny some of them uh today i think so it was worth retelling them and kind of weaving them together and it was really easy i, I unfortunately i had to leave some out you know i looked through our system there were hmm. really good ones but some were maybe just a little too complicated to break down into an hmm. excerpt like this or were repeated by other stories maybe told a little bit differently or better so i just focused on six or seven or eight i can't remember and I just did them in order of when they ran in the paper. And it kind of made sense once I put it all together. So mm -hmm. these stories are, go from the most recent one, which I think was just a couple years ago, Harold Baumgarten, mm -hmm. uh, who was an inspiration for uh, Saving Private Ryan, his story. He had a photographic memory. And once he started talking about D-Day, he talked about it a lot. He wrote about it. He was interviewed by Spielberg and, and his writers and, and incorporated uh, a lot of his stories into there and and so Clifford Davis one of our <clears throat> former writers military writer military writer yep. had interviewed uh, Harold and uh, when I told Clifford that I was including his story in here Clifford said that he has kept the uh, recording that he made of that interview because as Cliff said it was history yeah. this is history from a guy with a photographic memory so and I was drawn to start the story with Cliff's with an excerpt of Cliff's interview with Harold Baumgarten because of that memory and the details that he has and even the men he refers to the men by their the men who died alongside him by their full name and their hometown yeah as a way of kind of making sure they're not forgotten yeah those you know normally that would be kind of a 
a clunky quote so and so from such and such but how it like gave me chills reading the, the 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 quotes and you're right it does feel like um reading this i felt like yeah it was a pieces of history um i think i was just i was just talking about how the new york times took their front page story was how it you know it's often referred to the greatest generation but maybe it was the quietest generation they didn't talk about these things and so yeah when you have people talking about them often later in life and to compile like this and then um i think we often try and find somebody who's alive to tell these stories but it, it packs a different kind of punch i i thought that all these you know all these people were gone and Yet, yeah, you were able to have the stories. It worked really well. Yeah, the um, yeah, there was one of those quotes. For instance, you said, um, "I hit the ground and noticed Robert Dittmar from Fairfield, Connecticut, lying on his back, yelling, Mom, Mom, I'm hit.' All of a sudden, it was silent. That was one of the quotes in Cliff's story. Yeah. I was like, the, "That's the you know I, the Mom, Mom, of course, was powerful, but the Robert Dittmar from Fairfield, Connecticut. I was like, wow, that and that he purposely." You know, would rent. You know, it wasn't some nickname, and it wasn't, and it was their hometown. Yeah, yeah that was a great detail. Yeah, that's a great detail. But then look at what's the very next paragraph. He talks about his sergeant on his boat, Clarence Robertson of Lynchburg, Virginia. He was staggering by me. He had no helmet, a gaping hole in the left side of his forehead, and his blonde hair was streaked with blood. He knelt down facing the seawall and took out his rosary beads and began to pray and a machine gun to my right fired over my head and cut him in half. I know. <laughs> I know. And uh, we were talking about this earlier, how sometimes we we overuse quotes as writers. I think I, I do it, a lot of us do. And, um, I, you know, we talk about, ah, I need to get better at paraphrasing and not just using... And then you, you see quotes like this, and you're like, it would be a travesty not to have this person's words word for word because it's so powerful and because it's piece of history like yeah. cliff said the cliff was wise enough to use that mr Baumgarten's quote it's a long quote but whoa yeah 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 um so the next one maybe we can just walk through some of them that you collected sure the next one was uh mario Petruno, i think and that was one of your stories correct yeah i'd interviewed him down at his house near saint augustine in uh gosh 2011 and he was a brawler kind of a street kid and as I said, he would need every bit of toughness he possessed if he wanted to see June 7th because he was a paratrooper who, like so many paratroopers, went in early in the morning and got separated. They landed in the wrong place. And he went looking for his men. And uh, as famously told, uh, he was wandering through the countryside and thick with Germans and Germans everywhere. And he, had, he was trying to figure out a way to get back to the beach so he saw these horses, and right under the German's nose, he went and stole a white horse, went, took it over to a, 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 what do you call it, I guess, where the water is, uh, and, ju- and used that, um, the water container to, to jump on the, this big horse. And he told me he rode right down the middle of the road in the middle of the night, <laughs> and right past some German soldiers who s- saluted him, <laughs> and he saluted back thinking you know they they wouldn't think some yankee would be up there yeah right <laughs> riding a big white horse in the middle of the night it was hard to see so we just rode right by and he found his guys and they said hey gus didn't you know there's a war going on <laughs> and actually in that movie mr baumgarten's stories we talked about previously were used in saving private ryan to help tell their story 
And uh, Mario's story was apparently uh, an inspiration for a scene in Band of Brothers where there's a, mm. jump, a soldier scene riding a white horse. <laughs> yeah, that Later would... in life, he, 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 there's, we have photos of Mr. Petruno sitting on a white horse at Veterans Affairs, you know, Veteran God, That's great, yeah. Yeah, you had details like that that amidst all... I mean, you, it, it was kind of a roller coaster ride reading it because you had stuff like that that made you smile and laugh and, you know... Um, that was yeah, that was a great story. Yeah. Um, then you you segued from that to some pretty vivid imagery. Tell that tell that story, would it? Yeah, over this long interview we had, he uh, his memory was failing a little bit when we spoke. Just the the how events stacked up, but he would cycle back to these events, and and I just remember just sitting there agog with my notebook. Uh, taking down stuff he had he told me and he was talking about how absolutely vicious it was mm-hmm. and how it was just awful and he would wake up in the middle of the night still you know in his late 80s uh, with nightmares about mm-hmm. this and, and he talked about we had a saying come face to face with the enemy kill him eat his rations and take his watch for a souvenir yeah. then I wrote these are stories he told me he once took the ring off the rotting finger of a giant German soldier dead on the side of the road. Another time he took a hunk of black bread from another dead German's knapsack. The bullet that killed him had gone through his chest, out his back, and finally stopped in the bread. Petruno said he ate the loaf, then spat the bullet out. Yeah, yeah. This tough guy. You told me that story the other day. I was going, yeah, what What were you doing when you were 22? <laughs> I mean, that stuff. stories like that, like, just yeah. mind-boggling to picture they were so young and and what they experienced and yeah that, that anecdote was amazing yeah um it made me think of my father who was 19 in the battle of the bulge and taken pow and some of the stories he told us like later in life um but much later in life and only if you got him in the right right mood and i think uh the right situation i think that was a very common thing to many people hmm. whose parents went through this speaking of of Older, and you mentioned the the old man, forty five, which yeah. <laughs> Matt and I are a little over forty five now. But that anecdote was also powerful. Tell that one. And he talked about how they were told not to take prisoners, so they would either side, and you see that in Saving Private Ryan, I believe, uh, would just shoot the other guys. Mm-hmm. And um, and he Mario admitted that he did that in mm-hmm. war, but one time he couldn't. Um, as hardened as he was, he just couldn't pull the trigger. The German was an older man, perhaps 45, half-balding. He held his hands at his side and bowed his head as he prayed loudly, loudly, waiting for the bullet. He looked like my father, Mario told me. Like my father. So I turned around and walked away. Yeah, yeah. And he remembered that over all those years. Yeah, that's the other part that's amazing is that the amount of details that they're telling when they're you know they're yeah. in their 80s or whatever age yeah. well mr baumgarten who we talked about all his incredible details were from one day because he was captured on june 7th mm. so all those details that he had were hmm. from one day imagine hmm. that hmm. um another one i liked that is kind of the contrast was um frank young um became longtime journalist for the times union this was a uh, uh, he died in '09, but this is a story you did in '08, so not that long before. But what I really liked about this is that that 
you've, you've already talked about hor- how horrific it is, which isn't necessarily that surprising because we picture now Saving Private Ryan and all these things, but you kind of forget this prelude to it. Um, how and, and tell this story. This, I mean, this one. I think because it's the the antithesis of D-Day, the the prelude to it was was really powerful to me. His emotions wanting to get a seat on the plane. Yeah, my lead was Frank Young tried to buy his way into D-Day, but no one would give up a seat. Not even the most nervous guys. The guys who got so terrified they vomited during each flight. Yeah. It's June 5th right. at the airfield in England. And yeah, he knows he's, it's coming on. He knows the invasion's coming, and he's going around offering money to get on a plane. Right, and he I liked a, how you described He was a bomber, and he wanted to get in there. Described it bustling, brightly lit up. You know, it's all this, you know, it's not the bloody scenes. It's this this prelude and everybody wanting to be a part of it. And you talked about um, give them $10, even a good-sized chunk and change in those days. But everyone wanted in on this day. Yeah. So poor Frank didn't fly till the next day. But he flew 65 missions. Yeah. Imagine that. And he, he told me, I still remember him telling me that he would, and I put it in the story, that they'd come home from missions sometimes and they'd count the bullet holes in their planes. It'd be more than 100 sometimes. They'd stop counting. Sure. And his good friends died and he was crushed. And, and the detail that he told me, I included it in the story. And if you don't mind, I'll read it. It just struck me yeah. as an amazing thing after these 65 missions. Um, by late 1944, he was back at an English air base, his tour in Europe over, ready to board a hospital ship to America. It was strange. He should have felt relieved, but he was vaguely deflated. He was leaving friends and had lost friends. The war would carry on without him. He stood in formation with other departing bombardiers, all in their greasy, worn jackets. They were drawn-looking, tired, haunted. Nearby were new American pilots, headed for fresh battles. The kids were high-spirited, punching each other, laughing, horse-playing. And Frank told me, They were just, just behind us, a year or so younger than we were, but we looked like old men already. You change a lot in one year. You get wrinkles and crinkles, and not just from age. Yeah, no, that was... That was really strong, the quote. And juxtaposed with that almost, uh, you know, giddy, I don't know if that's the right word, but the prelude. You know, here you're you're in a matter of 10 inches of copy. You've taken me from that to this, just feeling so much older than the day before D-Day. Yeah. Um, Well, that's, it was, stories like that are almost incredibly easy to tell because the guy's, like Frank was such a natural storyteller, a journalist for all these years, a neighbor of mine. He was a great guy. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, and we just sat on his porch, and he told me this stuff. And all you got to do is just huh. take it down and faithfully retell it. Yeah. And you've got a hell of a story. Yeah. Um, so let's see. The next one was Ed Gandy. Um, it was written in 2005. And... <laughs> Part yeah that jumps out about this talking about young, so yeah he he enlisted lied about his age when he was fourteen or fifteen, and uh, by the time D Day happened he was sixteen years old, and he told our reporter Shannon Houghton, it's hard to believe it's been sixty one years and I'm still walking around. How did I survive that? Yeah, and this is well this is something another one of those quotes and that you 
punctuate. Um, it describes the scene that said, you know, it says, uh, weaving its way through water thick with bl- bloody bodies, um, dangling entrails, and then, quote, to see that many bodies in the water, that makes you grow up quick, he said. And then Matt wrote, he was 16. Yeah. And even though I already knew that beforehand, I was like, damn. Yeah. You know? I'd like to claim credit for that, but that was Shannon. That's how she that. wrote. Yeah. That's how she wrote yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was even though you know that already. I think it was. Go ahead and remind the readers yeah. that. Yeah. Um, I was mowing lawns when I was sixteen and trying to grow my hair long. I want. Yeah. I don't. I don't want to admit on radio or podcast what I was doing when I was sixteen. Yeah. Um, Albert Braddock. This was a two thousand two story survivor of Omaha Beach. Um, one of six siblings in one Baldwin family who served during the war, which whenever I read stuff, that wasn't maybe that extreme. It was how many, you know, families of kids would go off. Um, and this was a story by Rachel Davis, Mm -hmm. um, in 2010. Um, so yeah, what, what details about that one jumped out at you? Uh, just that Albert didn't never talked about it much, even with his own family, until much later in life, as many veterans did, and uh, how he was uh, in the second wave, and he still saw the bodies on the beach. And I was just struck by a paragraph Rachel wrote from his stories, and I circled it in big, <laughs> big circles and said, "Okay, Albert Braddock's got to make this story mm-hmm. because of this quote, which was uh, he was at Omaha Beach and." Uh, by nightfall, the United States had suffered 2,400 casualties at Omaha. Albert stayed at Omaha for about six to eight weeks after the invasion, unloading barges full of supplies for the Allies. Instead of the bloody beach, Albert wrote home to his mama about the pretty French dairy maids and cows with fresh milk. Omaha wasn't something she needed to know about. Yeah, I circled that one too when I was reading it. It was yeah. really good. And kind of fits in with the overall what we were talking about kind of the quietest generation kind of thing and that they didn't but that that's a beautiful way of telling it right yeah. about the pretty french dairy maids and the cows with fresh milk yeah, yeah. <laughs> i remember I, this didn't make the story but i remember it made the original story i remember frank young the, the bombardier telling me how he would write letters home to his mother uh, by the big potbelly stove the pilots hmm. had the bombardiers had and he'd write these letters with all the gory details of everything that he'd seen mm. and then just crumple them up and throw them in the fire wow because she didn't need to see them. she didn't need to know this huh. that made in your story originally the original story yeah. yeah yeah i would hope so yeah because <laughs> that's you could talk about symbolism there yeah. yeah um so let's see dale groom uh uh june 6 1999 story um and he died that year um, he was a navy doctor so a lot of these stories it's interesting how in you know in hindsight how fortunate we were to talk to them not long before they passed away and off oftentimes yeah well uh, it tells you you know in this day when newspapers are so threatened and uh, by economics and by people calling them fake news and everything we tell the history this is history and we're telling it mm-hmm. every day uh so vital a thing and to have these stories preserved yeah and to be able to take them out and retell them was a real honor and mr groom by the way it was my last guy i couldn't track him down i couldn't find out what had happened to him 
And finally, I called someone who I thought might be his son up in South Carolina, hmm. and he told us that um, he told me that yes, it was my dad, and that he died in shortly after telling this story. He was coming up for Christmas to from Jacksonville, driving up to South Carolina, hmm. where his son lived, and he had a one-car crash, went hmm. off the road, and uh, and died hmm. right at Christmas time. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and the powerful details in his story i mean there was a lot of um a, you know a different one different perspective was talking about how we cared about the, the bodies not the uniforms yeah they took care of german pow's and uh and and yanks allied soldiers uh indiscriminately because he was a doctor and that's the hippocratic oath and, yeah so that's yeah. kind of a, a nice interesting contrast to you know with the what the what a soldier was tasked with earlier and you know basically you you know you you shoot the enemy and you don't you know don't give them a reprieve yeah um yeah our old uh old friend um times unions bo halton wrote oh, that's this right and, yeah. a, and did a really good job on this story describing they basically they would take these uh the landing ships would drop off the men and the supplies at the beach and then the return trip back to England, they'd take the wounded on the decks hmm. and below decks. Mm-hmm. I guess there's maybe a deck right there, mm-hmm. one level up. And uh, while they're getting bombed, they'd pick up yeah. soldiers to take home. Right. Um, and then one I liked, which was different, that you mixed in was uh, um, the story was The Citizens of Jacksonville from June 6, 1944. And it was... Uh, columnist Bill Foley on D-Day 1999 looked back on how Jacksonville learned of the invasion and I think both of us we, we kind of love going looking at microfilm and seeing what how is it originally covered and uh, so that's what Bill Foley did for for that column in that year um, and it, it always seems it always it, I'm always interested by what I find and it's not necessarily what I expect and there's there's details in there that I w- wouldn't have expected. You know, what it, maybe explain what you found or what he found, and you re- relate again. Just at the first door, you think about it was happening uh, across the Atlantic, and the morning paper still got it in. Uh, just an eight-paragraph story with, as Bill noted, puckishly with a very small head, head, small type, a small headline uh, saying "Nazi radio reports invasion underway early this morning." Yeah. Yeah. And the journal, the afternoon paper, their reporter, Ron Sircombe, wrote, As early as 3 o'clock in the morning, lights blinked on in suburban homes. Telephones jangled. Sleepy-eyed households, holders clustered around radios. <laughs> so there's that instant history again. Mm-hmm. right? So now you read this article from 1944, and you know what Jacksonville was doing. People were calling each other up. The invasion started. You know, Imagine hearing about it maybe on the radio. Right. You're, you're up late. You phone your neighbors and tell them, and they phone other right. people, and you gather around the radio at three in the morning yeah. to, to watch this momentous, yeah, to picture, to that listen to this momentous event happen. Just little details like it rained heavily. So yeah, put me in that section. Put me in the place, but not over there on the beach. But here, what was happening here? And I thought, yeah, it was re- another really interesting section. And then. How did you decide what to end it with? Well, I guess it was because it was chronological. So it's chronological, yeah. So you end with 
and it seemed like it, it took us back. This last part seemed to take us to a nice ending. Right. So, yeah, it was Carl Bishop and John Robertson. Um, story was July 24th, 1998. Um, Jacksonville natives in the 29th Division, first wave to hit bloody Omaha Beach. Um, so, yeah, tell me what, what you found in that story. And that was... was uh, that was a Matt Sorgel story. It was, yeah. I was reviewing movies at the time, and there was a new movie out called Saving Private Ryan. So I can't remember how we arranged it, but I went to see Saving a preview of Saving Private Ryan with these two veterans hmm. who sat there next to me very quietly through the entire movie. Hmm. And during that incredible opening scene, I was just horrified that maybe I'd done something wrong. Yeah, and uh, but they talked about the horror of it and how it was. You know, the blood and guts of it is pretty much like you saw it. Mister Bishop told me intestines, brains, seasick. And Mister Robertson said, "I saw my lieutenant, the boat team leader, hit by a shell. He went up sky high, and I saw one of our flamethrowers hit. He exploded." And Mister Bishop said, "We saw some horrible things. Some mighty brave men too. Lots of them, young men." Yeah, I like that. And the other part I like from Mr. Bishop was, you had a paragraph. He married shortly after getting home, and when his wife would get out of bed to go to the bathroom at night, he'd fret over her. Where are you going? He'd say nervously, keep quiet, keep low. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that one gave me goosebumps yeah. reading that one. Yeah, when he told me. And this all wrapped up to the end, and not to, you know, it's, it's just a movie, but to... It just tied in with Saving Private Ryan at the end when they go back to the to the visible reminder of D-Day, the, the, the gravestones and the Star of David's and the crosses there in, in Normandy. And uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Robertson went back there. Uh, well, both men have been back there. Mm-hmm. And uh, just like at the end of the movie, and Mr. Bishop ended our story by saying, in that cemetery you saw there, I just broke down and cried like a baby. Yep. So what better way to end a story I know. that way? Yeah, and that scene, yep, if it worked for Spielberg. <laughs> it worked for the Times Union, yeah. too. Yep. No, we're, uh, the, the the whole story worked really well. I liked, you know, it's, I mean, back to the original premise of this, it's always a challenge. What do you do on these big anniversaries when we've, we've done them again and again, but to pull these together and I think because they're all gone, it carried different weight. There was a you know, there was a stat in the, I think it was in the New York Times story where um, fewer than three percent of the 16 million American veterans of that war are still alive, and all are in their 90s or beyond. So, yeah, um, yeah th- this will be the way the stories will have to be told pretty soon. Obviously, so. Um, Thanks. It was a really enjoyable read, and thanks for talking about it on the podcast. Yeah, it was an honor to write it and to talk about it, too. Check it out on jacksonville.com or in your Times Union paper. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Thank you.